Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi all, thanks for tuning in. Today on the show we have Gavin Freeman. Gavin was the team psychologist for the Winter Olympic team in Torino in 2006 and 2000 Sydney Paralympic Games. He was also a team psychologist for the Olympic archery team up in Sydney in 2000. At the professional level, he has worked with a variety of athletes with the best sporting leagues around the world, including the NBA, WNBA and the PGA. Additionally, he was team psychologist at the 2003 Rugby World Cup. Gavin's background is diverse as it is unique. He is a fully registered psychologist with experience in both the sporting and corporate world. So a great cross-section of experience at the elite level in both sport and business. His uh, first book was called The Business Olympian and this was released back in 2008 and captures the mental toughness lessons learned from elite athletes and how these skills can be easily transformed or transferred into the corporate world. Gavin's second book, Just Stop Motivating Me, was released out in 2016. Just Stop Motivating Me is a new way of looking at why we act the way we do, how we can create smarter and more productive working and social environments. It further explores what is needed for individuals to change the way they work, think and play. So introducing these concepts which we'll touch on in the interview of motivation to succeed and also motivation to avoid failure as part of a wider motivational continuum. So he's currently working on his third book and when he's not writing you can usually hear him on a couple of the business radio shows across Australia and Channel 7 Sunrise programs as well as a few other leading channels. So I hope you enjoy my conversation today with Gavin Freeman. Gavin Freeman, welcome to The Mentor List. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem, and welcome to Work Club, and good to have you here on Collins Street in Melbourne. Yeah, it's a fascinating setup. I love these environments where you get people together to collaborate, but to get work done in a, in a different style of, of the way we normally work, and I always find that fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah, good good segue, I guess, into your, your story, the word fascinating. So, Business Olympian, do you want to do you want to take us through? I guess the story of Gavin Freeman. Sure, it's a, it's an interesting one. I come from a family of accountants, and so naturally I became a psychologist. And through that process, I you know were, I was at university looking around how do I craft a degree that's going to take me on a journey that will fulfil both I guess what I was interested in doing, you know uncover the stuff that I didn't know that I didn't even know yet, but also something that I was going to be passionate about. I, I never wanted to take a traditional pathway. And, you know, with hindsight, you know, I don't think I was smart enough at the time at university to realize what I was doing, but it turns out I actually took a really interesting pathway. I met with the then heads of psychology and human movement and, and said to them that they they didn't really provide an opportunity for me to do a double degree in both areas and I'd like to get permission to do so and, and they were kind enough 
I, I guess, to, to agree to allow me to do a double degree in both psychology and human movement, sociology of sports and, socio and, and sports psychology, because I was always interested in performance and how individuals were able to perform, but obviously from a psych perspective, not necessarily from a biomechanical perspective. Right. So, so, yeah, so I ended up convincing them to allow me to do a degree. And, and ironically, the year after when I went to apply to do my fourth year, the two individuals who had agreed to it had both since left the university. Oh, okay. And so my the initial comment back from the dean at the time was, well, you can't do this. And fortunately for me, I had some stuff in writing where they had already agreed to it. Yeah. And so they allowed me to do it. So I ended up doing, a, a, I guess, a double degree in in psychology and human movement and I was always interested in the psychology of performance not necessarily sport but the natural pathway for me was to follow a sports psychology pathway fortunate enough to be accepted into the University of Southern Queensland to do their master's degree there in sport and performance psychology followed that through and was selected to be the was selected for the role of postgraduate scholar at the AIS the Australian Institute of Sport right Turned up at the Institute of Sport at the most fortuitous time. It was 1998. Yep. Uh, you know, the Olympics were in Sydney. Australia had its biggest team going. And the beauty of a, of a home Olympics is that the local team doesn't need to qualify. So every, so which is why we had our biggest team, because right. when you go to a normal Olympics, teams have to qualify to get in. Yep. Home country doesn't have to qualify. What that meant was, is that we had a bigger team and more opportunities to get on teams to to support those teams so yep. i was attached to the archery team and archery had never done anything from a, a medal winning perspective but we ended up having a full complement went to the games and won a gold medal simon fairweather won gold in yeah, sydney cool. 2000 and i was part of uh, you know i was part of the support structure of that team which was a great way to start my career is um, that such a, a mind I don't know. I'm just mm. talking off the cuff, but I mean, I imagine the mind plays a lot in archery. Absolutely, physical element. To yeah. it comes down to, I guess, one of the core belief systems of I have, which is around how do we define the difference between good and great. I know you're going to ask about my inspirational quote later on, but I, I might even sneak it in a little early and then we can talk about it later on as well. But I have a very definite view around the difference between good and great. And for me, it's not a technical difference. For me, the difference between good and great is the ability to perform consistently under pressure. And when you think about an archer, the, the ability for them to perform is given. You know, Once you can shoot an arrow, you can shoot an arrow. The challenge then is to be able to shoot 16 arrows well right. and you only get 16 so you might be the best archer in the world and ironically for simon which was a really it was a you know an interesting insight into the world of archery is that in sydney he won gold medal in athens he got knocked out in the first round so it's one of those sports it's a brutal yeah. sport you can get knocked out and so for me it captures it perfectly that ability to perform consistently under pressure is absolutely vital and it's really been the underpinning of all the work that i've done since so moving through that, I was you know, absolutely fortunate enough to spend a lot of time at the AIS working with a variety of different sports. So then worked mm -hmm. with some professional sporting teams along the way. I went to World Cup Rugby 2003, which wow. was fantastic with the Tongan team, which was, a, again, a fascinating insight into different cultures and the diversity of thought and, and how different individuals bring an elite mindset to a game where there is a set of rules. So everybody knows the rules of rugby, but 
you approach it differently, even as even down to the way the Tongans did their pregame routine, and and like the the All Blacks have a haka, yeah. and would would sing it in the in the change rooms, and it was the most amazing thing to be part of something like that. You know, Australians don't don't do that, yeah. so it is different. So we all have slightly different ways, except the game of rugby is still the same. So people approach things and approach their performance differently, and that's what's always fascinated me is understanding those insights around how we perform consistently under pressure but recognizing the diversity and the differences in individuals mm. who do that and everyone's different and so therefore during the day I might be talking on the same topic but realize that I'm having to approach it very differently for you know yeah. when I was in the sporting world for a different athlete so what worked for one athlete you know didn't necessarily work for the others and so you had to adapt and you had to continually challenge the status quo challenge the models that were presented so psychology along you know, like other industries likes to likes to think about the world in models likes to think about a parameter yeah. when it comes to performance you don't have that and so that's always intrigued me that it's always different business is the same mm-hmm. so you know while you know commercially most organizations are around to generate profit in some way shape or form they do it differently and they have different ethics and different morals and different values that underpin it but at the end of the day if your business isn't making money well it's it's really difficult to continue to mm-hmm. to operate in that business yet they're all different so while you might say the model is you know money in is connected to expenses out and to product delivered but everyone does it differently yeah so when organizations will look to their culture or look to different things and how different elements of their organization interact with their ability to perform consistently under pressure that again creates a new challenge for me and, and operate and gives me a line of work that I find um, fascinating yeah so back to the story finished up so I was with the, at the Institute of Sport for a number of years was fortunate enough to then go on to as well as the summer games in 2000 be part of the Athens Games as a support staff. Didn't go. My son was born at the time, so I was just born, so I, was, I stayed home. And then I was team psychologist for the Winter Olympic team in Torino 2006 in Italy. So what do you, what do you actually, like as a team psychologist? What do, yeah, like, what do you do? Is it? <laughs> it's yeah. a great question because most people assume when you say the word psychologist, well, they jump to two conclusions. They either jump to the fact that you can read minds, which I always find mildly <laughs> amusing because I can. Right, okay. And I know what you're all thinking right yeah. now, so stop it. <laughs> or they assume that the psychologist is the motivational rah-rah person, you know, the, the, the team builder, the person who kind of does all the fun, cool stuff. And, and gets the motivation going. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. If there was ever a scenario where you didn't need a motivational rah-rah person, it was at the Olympics. I mean, if you really sit back and think about it, if somebody's not motivated to go to the Olympics, there's nothing I can say to them that's going to help them be motivated to perform on the day. It has to be self-generated. And in fact, that became the underlying theory of my latest book was really around dispelling the myths of of motivation in the way we currently think we need to motivate people but i'll share some of that stuff with you later on but you know during a games the, the goal of 
in my mind anyway, the goal of the sports psychologist is not about motivating the athlete. It's, it's actually about helping the individual understand the environment they're operating in to allow them to perform under pressure. And that's about recognizing the distractions, recognizing how one can deviate from their, their goals and their game plan based on pressure. And I think whether we call it pressure, whether we call it nerves, whether we call it stress, it's the same word. It's the impact and emotional interpretation of an event has on the individual. So you might say, I'm nervous. And I'll tell you, that's, that's fine. What does nervous mean to you? So you think about what nerves, nerves means something different to everybody. You might define it as being stressed or you might define it as feeling the pressure. All those things really are, is just a cognitive description of an emotion, which is I'm feeling something that is different from the norm. You know, athletes will train in a, in a bubble. They, they train in an environment which doesn't necessarily provide them with that competitive sensation. And so, you know, my goal during the training phase is to create that competitive feeling. You know, we always talk about you, you will always play the way you train. And so it's about replicating some of those, those sensations, replicating that environment to enable the athletes to become comfortable with ambiguity. And that's no different in the corporate world. I mean, for me, discipline is a, is a word that's banded around a lot, but we often determine discipline to be following in the parameters that we're given and following it to the nth degree. And I view it differently. I, I think it's very much more focus around recognizing that our world has significant amount of ambiguity and how do we operate within that world. Yeah, okay. So my role then at an Olympics is really very little. It's more to remind them of what the work we've done to date because often and it's enough spin in the situation an athlete will, will walk up to you and will will go as far as saying i've forgotten how to kick a ball or shoot a ball or right. throw a ball that they will actually get to the point where they think they've forgotten how to do the thing that they've been training for 10 years to do <laughs> it's quite fascinating they haven't forgotten yeah. it's just that the environment around them is it becomes challenging and, and some of them succumb to that mm. pressure you know you often if you're a for those listeners out there who are a football fan, love their footy on the weekend, if you're Melbourne base or even whatever sport it might be, you know, just consider the frustration you have when your team plays like champions one week and then plays like they've got three left feet the following week. They haven't lost their skill. There's been no degradation in skill from one Friday to the following Friday. Something else is at play. Something else is there impacting on their ability to perform. And that's the psychology of performance. It's that moment where you go, why did this person, why was this person able to perform last week but not able to perform this week? You don't lose fitness in a week. Yep. You don't lose skill in a week. Yeah. You can, though, lose your mental toughness, your mental edge in a week. You can, in fact, lose it in a second. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of talk and there's often a lot of talk in the media around things like sledging and, you know, the, the friendly banter you often see with athletes. And, yeah. and that's what athletes are trying to do. They're, they're trying to put each other off yeah. because if, they, if the opposition isn't focused on what they're trying to do, then they're able to get one up. Yeah, sure. And, that, and while I was going through that, I found it interesting because it seemed as if the corporate world experienced the same subtle challenges, albeit on a different playing field. And so, you know, GSP 12, 
13, 14 years or so ago. I started to transition from the sporting world and into the corporate world. And ironically, at the time, faced a huge amount of backlash. Couldn't get a job. Right. I was applying for learning and development roles. I was applying for, you know, analyst type roles in a, you know, learning and development space. And, and, and my argument was, I've got a psych degree. I've got a master's degree in psychology. I've built training programs for elite athletes. And I was getting feedback from recruiters telling me, but I couldn't do that in a corporate setting. Right. Because for some reason, I couldn't build a workshop or yeah. understand it. And it left me with a huge amount of frustration. I figured I could either bash my head up against the wall and try to convince people, or I could go back and restudy to to simply make that link between sport and business. So I went back to do an MBA. Yeah. And what's fascinating, just as a as an insight around perception, and I won't name names because I'll protect the innocent in this, <laughs> but a particular company, and and it was a recruiting company, and then two other companies who I'd previously applied for with roles. The minute I changed my CV to include the words MBA and current, so I was very clear that I hadn't finished it, but I was studying an MBA. Suddenly, thought I had the the wherewithal to to get an interview, and in fact, went through to two other companies who had previously knocked me back and got interviews and got offered roles in both those organisations. Nothing had changed wow. in my world. The only thing that had changed was I had I had applied and had been accepted into an MBA. Right. The irony of the MBA is they accepted four, two, four, maybe two, I can't remember. They accepted a number of courses from my master's degree, so I didn't have to do a full MBA. I got right. <laughs> I got I got some courses credited. Good, good. So it was really interesting at a time to see that, you know, the, the lack of insight by some organizations around skills that individuals have and how they can transfer across. I don't think that had happened today. I think fast forward to today, I think most organizations are realizing that innovation diversity comes from a, a variety of different areas. And in fact, yeah. people are now moving into roles that they didn't have any formal training to do, but companies have recognized that they can bring a different lens or a different perspective, or there's clearly skilled transformation that's occurring in a different way to what yep. was happening back then. And we're not, we're only talking... 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, okay. But fortunately for me, I was I was able to um, make that transition yeah. and sort of started my journey in the corporate world. Didn't spend a lot of time working for people. I always had this goal of wanting to run my own business. Yeah. So after leaving the sporting world, I wrote my first book. And that's a fun story. <laughs> so this is the business. The Olympian. business Olympian yeah. book. I had always had it in the back of my mind that I was writing a book. And I do a lot of media. So I was doing, I was actually being interviewed at the time by a reporter for the Finn Review. Yep. We'd finished the interview and it was a traditional interview. It was around why athletes did something, whatever it was that they did. She was interviewing me on that. And I very much, I don't think I was thinking too much at the time, but I, I flippantly turned to her and said, This is a boring story. I've done this all the time. Have I got a better story for you? I'm writing a book on how the mindset of elite athletes will transfer into the mindset of elite corporates. And there are all these areas that transfer. And we often hear athletes talking. We see athletes presenting to corporates, but they never tell them how. They just tell them what they've done. They've never told them how to do it. So I'm going to write, I'm writing this book. I wasn't, by the way. I'm writing this, (laughs) this book on the, the mindset. 
And so the reporter did what a natural reporter did. She sort of asked me a few questions. And because I'd been thinking about it, I kind of threw out some 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 stuff, some things that athletes do that I thought the corporates could do. And and I was I was I honestly was making it up as I was going along. Yeah, but you'd obviously I'd thought it through. So I'd had yeah. the stuff in the background, but I'd never actually this was the first time I'd very much said, I'm doing it and this is what it is. That was on, I don't know, the Monday or whatever it was. Yep. On the Friday, I get a call from my dad who says, I didn't know you were writing a book. <laughs> and I went, I didn't know I was either. And he said to me, well, you better read the back page of the Fin Review. <laughs> and I thought, okay. And on the back page of the Fin Review, this reporter had written up this article with a big photo of my head sitting alongside it saying how I was now writing this book and putting it out there. Right. <laughs> and needless to say, that article became the front and front and center of every proposal I put through to every publisher to right. get the book done. It still took a couple of years. I, I, yep. I, it still took about three or four years, but that was, and the book ironically had everything that I'd mentioned into this reporter in it. So that was the first book was really about the mental toughness as, aspects. And that, that really catapulted me into setting up my own business and creating a consultancy where we focused on performing under pressure. Always kept that mantra all the way through, the ability to perform under pressure perform consistently under pressure. And that became the, the the impetus of the start of a consulting company. Yeah. And so really focused on how do we build high-performing teams in an organization where we've got individuals who understand the concept but, it, but may have never really put it into practice. And so using the sport analogy was fantastic. Yeah. They loved it and it really resonated for individuals, yeah. particularly ones who said to me, great, so you're telling me I don't have to exercise, I can just think like an athlete. And I went, that's exactly <laughs> it. Don't worry about the running. We're just going to do the thinking. And so it was very much focused on that. Fast forward a couple of years, I then wrote a second book around motivation because I was really fascinated around how do we actually motivate and understand the concepts of motivation with individuals in the workplace yeah and did you do um, this on your own uh sort of on your off your own bat, or did you, did you tell someone you're writing it no this this time around i was a little <laughs> okay. smarter i thought you know what i'm i'm gonna plan it before okay. i go to the right. publisher yeah so you know, the same publisher published the second book as well which was yep. great but no this one i thought through just a smidge more so when i went to them i actually went to them and said here's the idea yeah and then they we refined it and worked through on that and so that's kind of the the start of the journey. What's been fascinating has then been the, the way the journey's meandered through the corporate world because while I started off with doing high-performing teams, that's still what I do now, but I do it now in a very different way. Mm. And so the business has evolved and grown. We've got people working with us now. And we're, we've sort of in a space now where what the Business Olympian Group does is we focus on building high-performing teams but in a number of different areas. So we have quite distinct insights into building high-performing teams in a strategic innovation mindset, so when we're building strategy or when we're driving innovation within an organization. But then the, probably the biggest part of our business is helping organizations build high-performing teams under crisis. Right. So when a crisis is hitting, so whether that's, you know, you know, if you think back to the awful events around happened with the Lint Cafe siege, yep. the scenario that happened in Melbourne recently around the Burke Street Mall with the driver, you know, unfortunately, yeah. you know, committing some awful, an awful tragedy. But thinking about how organizations respond to that and it, you know, 
and it could it doesn't have to be the the catastrophes it, you know what we're finding with a lot of organizations now is that they're coming under threats of cyber attack whistleblower events internally that are impacting on their reputation and, and a variety of other um challenges that organizations face that affect their ability to protect their people their ability to operate and their ability to protect their reputation and so we help organizations build plans and we then train them and and test them because you know what we've recognized and it's much like the athlete you can you can train for an event but until you go to the event mm. you never know how well you're going to do and so while we don't like to create we don't like to wait for real events. We, we build simulations, very real simulations for organizations to experience the crisis and to then get the feedback that their plans are working and that the training that we're putting in place for them is actually enhancing and upskilling their skills. Because what we recognize is that while the senior leaders who come along to our training programs are all experts in their own right, they're all CEOs mm. of large organizations, you know, CIOs, CROs, all the C-suites that are part of our organ are part of our simulations. What they also though is they're also very smart enough to realize that crisis management is not something that they do on a regular basis. It's not something they practice on a regular basis. They hope it doesn't happen, obviously. And so therefore there is scope to upskill them in their ability to respond. I mean, we've seen some phenomenal catastrophes where senior executives have not acted appropriately during a crisis, which has led to significant impact on their business. And, you know, the two impact on the business and on self. And so the two, two instances, and it's public knowledge, so I'm not throwing anyone under the bus here, mm. but the two instances I refer to, uh, if you remember back to the, the, the fires that, that savaged Melbourne a couple of years ago. Yeah. And at the time, Christine Nixon as a police commissioner, or chief of police, went off to get a haircut yeah. in the middle. And while in isolation, what she did was not necessarily wrong, but the perception of what she did had a significant impact on her personally, I, mm. I would imagine. Yeah. The other one that's probably more fresh to people is thinking back to what happened to Dreamworld. Okay, just recently. Just recently. And look at the response of the Dreamworld, the Arden CEO at the time. And ironically, she's no longer the CEO anymore. She's taken a voluntary step down. Right. What, what, what um, happened there? So if we think about what happened, we had a tragic loss where four people were, were killed on, a, on effectively a family-friendly ride. And the Arden CEO and the chairman did not handle the situation particularly well. And in fact, at one instance, the CEO lied to the media and said she was in direct contact with the people and a channel 10 or channel 7 some one of the reporters in the room actually said stood up in the conference and went no you didn't mm. i've got them on the phone right here and now and you did not contact them that lie while minuscule in in the overall scheme of things the fact that people died i mean it's far greater a tragedy than yep. one one little lie but the impact that that lie had on the reputation of that business you know i always ask a question to most senior execs and it's one i encourage anyone listening to ask is if you were caught out doing something wrong one of the biggest questions you need to ask yourself as an organization is how do you rebuild and regain trust and trust is one of those emotions. It's not a thing. You can't get it fixed. You can't buy a new pair of trusts. Mm. They don't exist. You can't go down to the local store and just pick one up. 
um, like you can with a computer. So if your if your IT crashes, you can go and buy a new server. Yeah, that's very easily replaced. If your data is lost, you can do a backup. But if you've broken trust of an organization, how do you rebuild that? And if you think about it in the sporting world, it's no different. You've got 15, 5, 11, whatever sport you play, men and women on a, on a playing field who all have to implicitly trust each other. And if you don't, or something's happened in that team to break that trust, it's how do you go about rebuilding it? What's your plan to rebuild your trust, not only with your teammates or your, your staff, but also with the, with the community? Being able to to build trust is vital, particularly after you've lost it. And I'm not sure there actually is a hard, fast rule on how you do that. And so that's the challenge because different organizations need to build trust very differently. For Ardent in this case, in Dreamworld, it's a very different level of trust you're building with a very large community to ask them to come back in and get on your rides and prove that they're all safe again and nobody's yeah. going to get hurt again. That trust is different from the trust that you have with say your bank around you know banks are always in the media for doing certain things and you know always called in front of senate committees and asked to do certain stuff how do you build trust with the bank if they were to do something that violated your trust or a little while ago the australian blood bank accidentally released a whole bunch of people's names and so ultimately broke privacy laws but that's a different form of trust that they've got. So rebuilding that trust back is quite different versus, you know, if a hospital were to do something fundamentally wrong and people were to die and then further on go and say, well, come back to our hospital and get your surgery done here because it's safe. They're all very different insights into the concept of trust. And so therefore, depending on the type of organization you are, how you build, regain and protect your trust can be quite challenging for some organizations so that's where the very much the focus of the business goes has moved to now and and it's very much again aligned with where i took my next book which was called just stop motivating me yeah and and it was a very different take on the concept of motivation very different from the way i guess normal organizations think of motivation yeah yeah great so stop motivating me so this is sort of similar to what you're talking about in the olympics when you're you know they don't need motivation they need they need to be able to perform themselves yeah and it, it so fundamentally that's that's where it's come from i think most leaders out there will agree with me when they they often sit back and they think to themselves i'm spending so much of my time trying to get my people to do the things that i need them to do mm-hmm. right and you know it's the irony of management is that you you almost de-skill yourself in the technical skill of what you were trained to do and suddenly have to upskill yourself very quickly in a skill you weren't trained to do so you know back to the accountants before I was mentioning my dad and the accountants yeah. you know the head of the accounting practice isn't doing debits and credits anymore most of their time is spent either dealing with clients yeah. or managing staff and so it becomes quite different yeah and so therefore we often get caught up in this this rut of thinking I have to motivate my people and and this is where I think we get it all wrong. So my book's called Just Stop Motivating Me. And it's yeah. really aligned to saying to managers, we need to think about motivation different because from my perspective, people don't need motivating. We just need to understand their motivations. I firmly believe that everybody is motivated. They're just motivated in different ways and through different contexts will change their motivation. So you know, back in the good old days, we, we initially thought of motivation 
if you think back to caveman days, motivation was very much don't go outside because you'll be eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. It's yeah. pretty easy to understand motivation in that mindset, yeah. right? I get that. We then kind of moved into the industrial society and we started to see things like Maslow coming through. Maslow talked about his hierarchy of needs and, and he kind of suggested that you need to fulfill certain needs before other needs can be fulfilled. Yeah. So, you know, if you can't breathe, giving you a Porsche is really not motivation to do anything. Like if I got your head underwater, it sort of seems to make sense. The problem, though, is we started to get conflicting pieces of information where people were motivated to do things out of the order. So right. they were doing things, you know, we often have money as a as a low order motivation. Like if I don't have money, I'm not going to be motivated to do something. But then all of a sudden we started seeing people do stuff when they weren't being paid or volunteering to do things. Yeah, and you right. sort of needed to question why. So there's something more going on. Most organizations, though, today still use a variation of the carrot and stick and the positive and negative reinforcement style of motivation. Yeah. So I'll give you a carrot, a bonus, if you work really hard. And I'll do performance management on you, i.e. the stick, if you don't work really hard. Yeah. But I question how successful those are. You know, I question any organization who offers a bonusing structure to, to go and talk to their internal staff and see how well that works. Mm. You know, if they're not, if they don't have, so you think of your back end staff, if they don't have control of their destiny, they're not selling a product. How can they be bonused on performance on the mm. business? When they're in the back, they might be working their backsides off, but if the business doesn't perform, then they don't get their bonus. Or similarly, I'd ask them to consider, the motivation of their staff when they realize that they're not going to get their bonus. All too often I see staff will work really hard. And when they realize the bonus is not coming, I wonder what happens. Do people start to kind of go, well, I'm not going to get my bonus this year. So why should I put in all the effort? Yeah, it's lots. And we see that happening. Yeah. So, so I think the concept of the carrot and stick while plays out in some capacities, isn't the one that's going to cover off all the uh, it's, it's not all the answers. Yeah. So we sort of try to use the more positive and negative reinforcement rather than the very hard carrot and a very hard stick. So some companies have been a bit softer in kind of what they do. So it's more around, yeah. you know, the the positive reinforcement side of things. They're, they're having the conversations, they're providing the opportunities, they sort of, you know, I'm not going to give you a bonus, but I'll, but here's your pathway and here's where we can take you and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think a bit more success has been found using that approach, although I still don't think it holds true when it comes to understanding motivation. So in a way, I think they're all getting it wrong. Yeah. And I think the world should be according to me. <laughs> of course. Obviously. <laughs> you know, and I say that and I'm the only one who believes it and you know, that's good enough for me. But anyway, realistically speaking, I, I like to look at motivation more across a continuum rather than as a carrot stick, positive, negative. Yeah, sure. And so, my, so the focus of my book, which is all around the concept of just stop motivating me, which is to say you as a leader needs to, you need to stop motivating your people, but you need to understand what motivates them. And I think motivation is across a continuum. I think people are, are always motivated, just motivated in different ways. And the continuum shifts from being motivated to succeed through to being motivated to avoid failure. And it's very much the different context that they're in, which drives and determines their motivation. Great. I'll definitely yeah link to that up on the side and also your first book, The Business Olympian, I'll, I'll put them up. Mm. That's probably a good segue into whether you had a, another book to recommend and obviously you, you recommend those because we're chatting uh, before. Yeah. But um, was there another one that people might sort of... Yeah, look, if I, if I was recommending books, the, ironically as, a, as an author, I'm not a great reader. 
But yeah, there's a few that over the last little while that I've really found have resonated for me. Yep. Um, the first was Richard Branson's My Life, which was I found just a fascinating insight into the way he thinks. And he's very much an individual who's motivated to succeed. So what, so what I mean by that is that individuals who are motivated to succeed, they see failure as simply a stepping stone to future success. Mm. Whereas individuals who are motivated to avoid failure are overly concerned about the negative evaluation of themselves by themselves or by others. Right. And so we'll shift across that continuum. I probably didn't give you enough insight into that continuum, but we'll shift across that continuum depending on the context. Right. So in some scenarios, we might be very motivated to succeed. In other scenarios, to do almost the same task, we could be motivated to avoid failure. And the best example is to think of public speaking. Right. So some people love it. Yeah, it's an huh? interesting one. It's uh, love, love, hate. Love, hate type relationship. So, but I could, if you, even if you hated public speaking, I could get you to stand up and do a public speaking engagement. The difference would be your motivation. The individuals who love public speaking are thinking, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. If I make a mistake, I'll learn from it. Mm-hmm. The people who are thinking, I hate public speaking, will still do it, but their motivation is to not screw up. Yeah. And they're always thinking, I better not stuff this up. So that's a great insight around the continuum. The other book that I've always, that I found fascinating of late has been Malcolm Gladwell's latest book called David and Goliath. Okay. And it's a great insight into how small takes on big and and how, you know, innovation can often overcome years and years and years of establishment great. into into the world. And again, they both of those books capture the essence of my motivational theory. So the other last bit, I, I know I had a, an inspirational quote, which is the difference between yeah. good and great is the, the ability to perform consistently under pressure. The other, the other, it's not so much a quote, but the other bit of insight I'd leave you with is that when most people are faced with a challenge, the mindset tends to adopt what is often referred to as an aim, adjust, and then fire. And so what the brain does is it says, I'm going to aim at that. I'm then going to adjust it. So I'm going to tweak it around the edges and then I'm going to pull the pin and fire. Reality is that's not what happens. The reality is, is we get into an aim, adjust, 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 adjust a bit more. And then we sometimes still do fire, but it's often too late. We've missed an opportunity. It's, you know, we fire in the wrong space or the wrong, wrong environment. So I leave this. I guess the last that I'd leave with you guys is rather than us always use the aim, adjust, fire, which is aligned to some degree in the motivation to avoid failure mindset, is how can we implement an aim, fire, and then adjust? Fire, get the feedback. If if it's a failure, fantastic, learn from it. But you've got to fire to get the feedback. And so that's where the aim, fire, adjust mindset, I think, is much more aligned to my motivation to succeed approach, where failure is simply a stepping stone to future success. Yeah, okay getting a sort of good picture of this continuum because you're, you're mm. mentioning it or you're, you're linking back. I've built a, a questionnaire for it and on my website, you're more than welcome to, you can, I'll send you the links to it yeah. and you can, you can complete the questionnaire to give you some insights around your propensity to sit on both sides of that continuum. Right. Okay. Yeah. So just, just a couple more of the, the standard mentalist questions and then I'll, I'll let you go because I know you've got to head up the road. It's just sort of, you know, in the context of your second book, you, you've gone and you've interviewed, you know, some pretty heavy, not heavy, but uh, big name CEOs yeah. and C-suite execs. So 
just in terms of you know advice or habits is there anything you've picked up there yeah i was absolutely fortunate enough i put out a call to a number of of ceos cfos and the like in fact i've even got it was probably you know the one of the most fascinating interviews was was with um a guy who happened to be nelson mandela's personal bodyguard Right, and so I asked them all the question around this, around my my theory, to see whether it actually held true. What was fascinating is all of them still used the word motivation, but didn't describe it in the way motivation is actually used. So, for example, you know, I interviewed John Durkin, the CEO of Coles, and while he used the word motivation, he never described it as being him being the motivator. It was more about creating the environment and creating the context for his people to be self-motivated because he was very aware that there's no way he could motivate 100,000 people. Yeah. Didn't matter how powerful he thought he was. Yeah. So he didn't even try. So there were some really insights around sort of big global ways of working with organizations. I think the ones that fascinated me were how the individual, how the actual individuals operated and challenged themselves. You know, I remember interviewing the CEO of Lendlease Asia and Rod, while a fascinating man and, and deeply connected to his business and very, you know, very much focused on his people, one of, the, he, one of the things he did on a regular basis was he would go out across the business and we're talking all of Asia and he would have catch-up coffees with, every, excuse me, with everyone in the business who wasn't directly reporting to him. Right. So he would go and have coffees with the grads and he would go and have coffees with the, you know, the construction guys down at the site because yeah. he wanted to get a deep insight into his people and the businesses and some of the challenges that they faced, not just listening to the rhetoric coming to him from his direct yeah. reports. And um, so th- there's that level. The, you know, the last one I'll leave you with was uh, another fascinating insight into a guy by the name of Greg Brady who's, who works at one of the banks. Greg's a senior exec there, and Greg made the point to say that every morning he makes a decision as to the the mindset he's going to bring into work. Right. And at times we'll often sit in his car for a, an extra minute or two simply to check in and make sure that he's bringing the right mindset in. So that self-awareness piece mm-hmm. I think is – is one that most senior execs should aspire to to achieve. It's it's not it's more than emotional intelligence. Yeah, it's a it's a deep it's a decision that the individual makes to actually spend some time understanding themselves and recognizing the impact that they have on others. So the emotional intelligence is the outside what we see of it, yeah. that ability to interact and all the rest of it. There's a piece before that which says you've actually got to do the work. You can't have emotional intelligence unless you actually sit back and spend some time with yourself. And it was uh, fascinating to listen to. Yeah. And there's a number of them that that had a very similar sentiment across the people that I interviewed. Yeah, fantastic. I could just sit here and uh, yeah, listen in for hours. Um, yeah, it sounds like some huge names there. You you got to sort of yeah sit down and have conversations with. Yeah. So just for the the guys that are listening in and they've they've enjoyed you know the chat that we've had today. And they want to find out more. Or they want to contact you or get sure. you in to yeah. uh, not motivate their people. Find out, <laughs> but at least have a chat about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's two approaches you can take. One is to either head to my personal site, which is gavinfreeman.com.au, or from a business perspective, businessolympian.com.au. They all link in with each other at various stages through the wonderful world of technology. But uh, Gavin Freeman's more got my the speaking side of things in the books. Yep. Business Olympians got all the the corporate consultancy type 
type yeah. work. And if you want to get copies of the book, you can hop onto uh, hop onto the website and uh, you can get it through that because I think it's finally now out of print and no longer going to the bookstores. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> It's just what happens with books, eh? Right? You get a yeah. very short lifespan, but I've still got I've still got a couple of hundred left at home. Nice. Okay, great. All right. Well, yeah, thanks again for your time today and for everyone else, tune in again next week for another great show. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to take just a few seconds to leave a rating and comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at www.mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.